I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, I'm Alana, and this is Little Slights, where I discuss those who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Last episode, we learned about Cynthia Ann Parker, the daughter of Texas Rangers who was kidnapped as a child by the Comanche peoples and lived with them for 25 years before her rescue in 1860. Cynthia Ann never recovered from her experiences and the upheaval of her entire life, and would tragically commit a slow suicide for the next 10 years until her death around 1870. Cynthia Ann's story was one of heartbreak and trauma. Today's story is of a different sort, but some elements stay the same. 114 years and nearly 6,500 miles away from Cynthia Ann Parker's return to a world she no longer recognized, another person was finding themselves in an environment that was familiar yet undeniably alien. The year was 1974, and a Japanese soldier who had kept fighting World War II in the Philippines for 29 years after his country's surrender in 1945 was finally returning home. A hero's welcome received him, but this man, the last of a dying breed, was uncomfortable with all of it. The attention and a Japan that he found much changed from the place he'd left. Before all that could happen, however, he was Hiro Onoda. This is part two of The Displaced. Hiro Onoda was born March 19, 1922, in Kamakawa Village, Kaiso District, in the Wakayama Prefecture in the Empire of Japan the middle child of four documented sons. The Japan of Onoda's childhood, ruled over by Emperor Showa, or Emperor Hirohito, was one trending towards militarism, nationalism, isolation, and totalitarianism. The Japanese had had a succession of military victories in the early 1900s that gave their people great pride in their country and their military. At home, there was an emphasis on loyalty, honor, and duty, as was part of Japanese culture. These traits were ingrained in Hiro Onoda from birth. Combined with his own admitted defiance and stubbornness, Onoda made for the proverbial immovable object. At 17, he joined the workplace in a trading company in Wuhan, China, but that didn't last long. On September 27, 1940, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact with Germany and Italy after increased hostilities between Japan and China. Their real entrance into the war that was brewing in Europe, however, began over a year later, on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the United States military base in Pearl Harbor, Oahu, Hawaii. Onoda, who had enlisted in the Imperial Army Infantry when he turned 18 a year before, was instantly launched into war. It was not just duty to his country that compelled Onoda to enlist, but family tradition. Not only were his ancestors numbered with samurai warriors, but his father had served and died as a sergeant in the Second Sino-Japanese War. It was only fitting that he and his brothers would join the fight as well. The army trained Onoda in the commando class Futamata at the training center Nakano. Specifically, he was trained as an intelligence officer, specializing in guerrilla warfare, propaganda, and sabotage. The Pacific Theater was already beginning to turn badly for the Japanese by 1942, as the United States' industrial and subsequently nautical might began to far outstrip theirs. However, the war, and Onoda's training, would persist for several more years. The Japanese did not and would not surrender. They fought for every bit of land they could against the rapidly encroaching Allied forces. Many of these fights took place on the islands that dotted the Pacific near Japan. 
One by one, they fell to the Allies, Guadalcanal in 1942 and New Guinea in 1943. In the middle of 1944, the recently landed United States Army, buoyant with victory, turned their eyes towards the occupied Philippines with ambitions of liberation. As the weather turned, they began to push the Japanese out of the largely populated areas to the smaller islands. One of those islands was Lubang Island, where Hiro Onoda had just landed. He had three essential orders. Impede the American forces by any means necessary, don't get caught, and never surrender. Onoda wanted to retreat into the woods, regroup, and re-strategize as he had been trained. They couldn't defeat the enemy in open conflict, so the only option left to the Imperial Army was guerrilla warfare. However, he was outranked and ignored. The Japanese held their post, and when the American Filipino forces came for them on February 28, 1945, they were quickly overwhelmed and defeated. Almost every Japanese soldier was killed or captured. Almost. There were four soldiers who got away. Private Yuichi Akatsu, Corporal Shoichi Shimada, Private First Class Kenshichi Kozuka, and, leading them, the recently promoted Second Lieutenant Hiro Onoda. Onoda enacted his original plan and led his men into the woods. They were not the only Imperial soldiers who would make the wilderness of the Philippines and other nearby islands their camps as the Allied forces swept through the region. Remember, Onoda was told not to surrender. Japan didn't surrender. They would rather die first. And so, Onoda and these other soldiers kept to their mission. He must fight to control this island for Japan, or, failing that, make life and prosperity there as difficult as possible. But across the sea, Japan was bending. They had little choice after the atomic destruction of the cities Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the potential loss of even more. They formally surrendered in August of 1945. Onoda and his men, far up in the hills of Lubang Island, were completely unaware. Onoda ordered his men to do everything they could to harass the local population, burning, stealing, raiding, exchanging bullets and blows with the local police. Worst of all, they murdered civilians, innocent farmers just trying to get back to their lives after the occupation. Over the years, they would kill nearly 30 non-combatants of Lubang Island. In October of 1945, the United States tried to stop the guerrilla warriors of the islands by dropping leaflets over the islands informing them of the surrender. The war ended on August 15th. Come down from the mountains, the papers read. They were signed by General Tomoyuki Yamashita of the 14th Army. It was enough to convince most men. But Hiro Onoda had been educated in propaganda and dismissed the leaflets as fake. The men stole food to survive, sometimes relying on the cattle that had been killed in their raids, sometimes living off of coconuts. They built bamboo huts in the woods, patched their uniforms, and maintained their guns. Onoda kept himself and his men in the mindset of the loyal soldier, dedicated to the cause. One of his men, however, began to have doubts. Yuichi Akatsu was slowly realizing that the war was over, and had been for years. In 1949, he broke away from the group. He made it on his own for six months, and then, finally, in 1950, he came down the hills and surrendered to the Philippine army. As joyful as Akatsu's return must have been for his family, for the families of the other men, the news he brought was quite alarming. Their sons, brothers, nephews, they were still alive and still fighting. 
1950, Japan was moving on, recovering, entering a new age. But for these families, that could not happen until their loved ones came back to them. When the United States brought them this news in 1952 and asked for pictures and letters they could drop for Onoda, Shimada, and Kozuka to find, they agreed. The men found those letters, Onoda later confirmed. But instead of acknowledging defeat, Onoda only saw fear. Already paranoid because of Akatsu's defection, he, quote, assumed they were living under the occupation and had to obey the authorities to survive, as he would later tell an interviewer. Japan's surrendering was unfathomable to him. So this was the only thing that made sense. They kept on with their activities, but they couldn't escape forever. In 1953, Shimada was shot in the leg by a fisherman when he and the others engaged in a shootout with the locals. Onoda nursed his junior soldier back to health, but less than a year later, Shimada was shot dead by a search party who were looking for him. Onoda was down to one soldier, one man to keep him company, one person left to help him harass and attack the enemy as he had been commanded to do. He and Kozuka were declared dead in 1959 even though anyone on Lubang Island could tell you the criminals were very much still alive and still active. And they went on this way, he and Kozuka, for 13 years, hunted, hated and hating, loyal to a cause and an empire that had been dead for decades. Then, in 1972, Private Kinshichi Kozuka was shot to death by local police when they discovered him and Onoda burning a rice silo. Hiro Onoda was totally alone. Perhaps he could have spent the rest of his life on that island, terrorizing the locals until he was killed or died, but for the fact that his discovery had become the life's mission of a Japanese adventurer named Norio Suzuki. In 1974, Suzuki embarked on a trip around the world, declaring that he wanted to see Lieutenant Onoda, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that order. On February 20th, 1974, he checked one off his list. He had been searching for Onoda on Lubang Island for four days, crashing through the underbrush and shouting his name. Onoda would later recall meeting, quote, this hippie boy Suzuki who came to the island to listen to the feelings of a Japanese soldier. Onoda-san, the emperor and the people of Japan are worried about you, Suzuki told the old soldier, but Onoda still wouldn't leave. Not unless he was relieved of his duties by a superior officer. Suzuki was an intrepid sort, so he returned to Japan armed with pictures of Onoda as proof and brought them to the government, who pointed out Onoda's superior officer as a man named Yoshimi Taniguchi, who had since the war settled down as a bookseller. Suzuki gathered up Taniguchi and one of Onoda's brothers, Toshiro, and flew them back to Lubang. When the Imperial Army and Taniguchi had sent Onoda to Lubang Island in 1944, they did so with the promise that no matter what happened, they would come back for him. On March 9, 1974, they finally kept that promise. Taniguchi ordered Onoda to lay down his arms, and Onoda at long last complied, handing over his immaculately maintained rifle and ceremonial sword, his dagger, and 500 rounds of ammunition. It was not all ceremony. Hiro, seeing his brother there, told Toshiro Onoda sincerely, that he was sorry to have caused him trouble for so long. Two days later, he presented himself in his tattered and patched uniform to the president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, in Manila, and gave his official surrender, handing the leader his ceremonial sword. There, reportedly, his composure finally broke, and he wept. The president pardoned him for his many crimes and returned the sword. And, after 30 years, 
Lieutenant Hiro Onoda was finally sent home. He was greeted by a cheering, proud people. Japanese folk history is littered with romantic, brave, honorable soldiers who gave their lives to lost causes, and Onoda was a living example of that. His tale was one of tradition and duty that many Japanese thought was waning in the post-war years, of the cause and giving oneself to that cause instead of pursuing your own wants and needs. The Japanese army attempted to give Onoda back pay, but he refused. He did accept a $160,000 contract for a ghost-written memoir called No Surrender, My 30-Year War, which chronicled his time in the jungles of Lubang Island. Conveniently, it did not mention the 30 or so farmers Onoda and his men had murdered. But Onoda, like Cynthia Ann Parker, had a hard time both dealing with the attention he received and reintegrating into his native society. But where Cynthia Ann Parker struggled due to her exposure to and long life with the Comanche, Onoda was dismayed at what he saw as the decay of Japanese culture and mindset. He tried to immerse himself, learning how to drive, learning how to dance, traveling across the Japanese islands, but what he saw only disheartened him more and more. The economy had boomed after the 1950s, and Japan was now a rapidly growing capitalist country. Tokyo was too tall and too loud for Onoda, and people too enraptured by modern technologies and consumerism. Worse even still, Japan had let themselves be demilitarized after the war, and had taken responsibility for the war in East Asia, which Onoda vehemently disagreed with. He began to get involved in right-wing politics that wanted to bring back the war culture Japan developed in the early 20th century, but eventually the differences or attention grew too much. Onoda packed his bags in 1975 and followed his older brother, Tadao, to Brazil. He lived a quiet life there raising cattle, and settled down with a woman named Machi Honoku, a Japanese immigrant like himself who taught tea ceremonies. He did return to Japan eventually. Onoda read an account of a Japanese teenager who had murdered both his parents in 1980, and, inspired by what he saw as a sense of aimlessness in the youth of Japan, traveled back to his home country in 1984 to establish the Onoda Shinzenjuku, or Onoda Nature School, an educational camp for children and young adults that would be held all over Japan. From then on, the Onodas would split their time between Japan and Brazil, eventually becoming honorary citizens of their adopted homeland in 2010. In 1996, Onoda finally returned to Lubang. He had never apologized for his actions there, and it would have been vastly out of character for him to do so. The whole time he was in that jungle, he would say when asked, all he thought of was his duty. He did, however, donate $10,000 to a local school. Onoda died on January 16, 2014 of heart failure at age 91. He was survived by his wife, Machi. In an interview in 2010, Onoda said of his infamous time in service, I became an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry it out, I would feel shame. I am very competitive. He was a stubborn soul, but also dutiful and loyal. He had given everything to his emperor and his country. And when he returned to find both diminished and disappearing, he was set adrift. Onoda was allowed to find his footing again, unlike Cynthia Ann Parker, but for both of them, recovery, remembrance, was not a blessing. It was an irrevocable change, an abrupt removal from a time and place where everything was still as it should be. For the rest of their lives, they lived as the displaced, searching for a way back to who they were. <laughs>